If you'll take your Bibles, will you turn with me to the Old Testament, to the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah chapter 12, Isaiah chapter 12, and we'll read verses 1 through 6. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. A day to give thanks. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. May the Lord bless to us the reading of His Word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> now, Father, we thank You that we come into Your presence because we desire to hear Your Word. We pray that Your Word might fall upon good soil, that You would stir up our minds and our hearts as we listen to Your Word, that we might believe it and receive it and confess it to be true and for us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning to grasp and understand the prophet Isaiah so long ago and this little chapter, chapter 12, that we might grasp all that he says. We thank you that this week is a week really for Thanksgiving, a day of Thanksgiving this coming week. We pray that you would prepare us for that and thank you for it. And we thank you now for this time. We ask that, that the Lord Jesus Christ among us would receive all the praise and all the glory, and that the Holy Spirit would take the Word of God and put it into our hearts, into our minds, that we might hear and live according to your Word. So we praise you and we give you thanks for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's one thing I think we all know from the Bible, is that God's people are expected by God to be a thankful people. God has designed us in such a way that when we come to worship, like we do this morning, that as we sing our praises together, as we give, as we pray, as we read the Bible, as we listen to God's Word, that all of that is to be done in the framework of being a thankful people. I mean, why would you come to worship unless you were a thankful person? So God expects His people to be a thankful people, to give thanks uh, to Him for all that He has done for them. So thanksgiving or being thankful is largely a response to who God is and to what God has done for us. That means that we think about God, who He is, and we consider all the benefits, all the blessings, all the privileges, all the things that God has lavished upon us, showered upon us, that perhaps we take for granted at times, but thanksgiving is a response to those things, to who God is and to what God has done for us. So thanksgiving involves praise. We've sung our praise this morning. That's what it means to give thanks to God. Thanksgiving is about adoring God. 
our adoration. It is about our submission to God. God speaks to us, God does things for us, and God calls upon us to respond to Him in the light of that. One of the great privileges you all have this morning is not only to be alive and breathing here, but to be here in the presence of God, for that is why you have come. You have come to worship God, to listen to God, to hear what God has to say from His Word. And our response to that, not just merely thanksgiving, but humble submission and with humility in our thanksgiving towards the Lord. To give thanks is an inward thing. You give thanks in your mind. You give thanks in your heart. Your thoughts and your desires are where thanksgiving internally, inwardly takes place. But that's not all, and that's not the only place where thanksgiving occurs. It is an external thing, isn't it? We have sung our thanks to God. We have sung our praises. We have opened our lips. We have opened our mouths. And we have responded to God in thanksgiving. So it is an outward expression, not just an inward or internal operation, but thanksgiving is an external, outward expression with our lips, with our mouths, with our actions, as we think on who God is and on what God has done for us. What a great privilege to be a Christian, because God has revealed to us Himself in the person of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have seen what Jesus has done for us. We know that from the Scriptures. He has given Himself. He has laid down His life for us. What's the proper response to that? To say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for who you are. Now, being a thankful person does not mean that you can keep some part of who you are reserved for yourself. Now, being a thankful person is to lay all that you are out there before God. It involves the whole person, who you are as a Christian. It involves all that you are. So we cannot give thanks to God truly and hold something back from God. You might have some sin that you're clinging to, or some idol that is in your heart, or even some good thing that occupies more attention than it should. We should render to God completely all that we are because of who He is and because of what He has done for us. So to give thanks is really ultimately to give yourself up to God. You read the Old Testament, it talks about sacrifices of thanksgiving. What is a sacrifice but something that costs you something? And really the ultimate sacrifice is yourself. To give who you are, to give all that you are, all that God has made you and blessed you with. To give it all to God, to lay down yourself before Him. Whenever I think about giving thanks, if I were to say thanks, thank you to somebody, it's because I recognize what they have done for me. They have maybe given me something. I return thanks to them. So thanksgiving, or being a thankful person, always involves a recognition of the giver and of the gift. We say thank you to the person and we are grateful and thankful for whatever we are given. We do that with God. We give thanks to God. We give thanks to the Lord. And we are required and expected, as I said at the beginning, that that's what God wants from His people, for them to be a thankful people. As a parent, 
with little children long ago, uh, we taught our children to say thank you. If somebody gave them something, say thank you. Always say thank you. When someone does something for you, gives something to you. And parents should teach their children to be thankful, thankful children because ultimately they're going to grow up and they're going to do the same with their children. That's what you want. That's what you desire. So when you don't train them to be thankful people, then they just live their life expecting instead of really learning how to give because they themselves have been thankful for what they have received. God has lavished upon all of us, upon each one of us, so many bountiful gifts that flow from who He is, from His nature, from His character, that in the giving of the gifts, God is saying to you, I want you to stop and take the time and reflect upon Me as the giver, as the one who has given these things to you, and what should we do in response to that except to say, Thank you, Lord. That's what Thanksgiving really is all about. We have much to be grateful for, much to thank God for as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you know, this is, the, this is Thanksgiving week, and on Thursday we have a day of Thanksgiving, which affords us an opportunity to just be thankful. Thankful for country, thankful for family, thank you, thank you for, for friends, thankful for our church, thank you for so many, many things. Thank you for health and all of these things. And ultimately, we recognize that when we say thanks or give thanks for those things, no matter where you do that or when you do that, ultimately all of those things come from God and are a gift from God to you. So you are essentially saying thank you to God for all of these blessings that you have. So it will be for us on Thursday a day of thanksgiving. But I want you to notice this morning in Isaiah chapter 12 that Isaiah himself speaks about a day to give thanks. And this entire prophecy really revolves around this theme of being thankful or of thanksgiving or a day of thanksgiving. So look what he says in verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. So notice, you will say in that day, on a day, on a particular day, a future day, that, that day you're going to say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. A day of thanksgiving. Now look at verse 4. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name. And on it goes. Notice, in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Now what does Isaiah really thanking God or saying that we're going to give thanks to God for on that day. Well, notice first of all, verse 2, he's speaking about salvation. Behold, God is my salvation. And the latter part of verse 2, He has become my salvation. And look at verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the well of salvation, or the wells of salvation. Now, I think it's important for us to grasp and understand the context of Isaiah chapter 12. It is the conclusion of what began back in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. And there you're going to find some marvelous statements about someone who's going to come in the future, who's going to be a deliverer, or to put it uh, in another way, is going to be a savior, one who saves people. So you will find the promise of the coming one. So if you go to chapter 11, look at verse 1. And it says that this one who's going to come, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, 
and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. In other words, here is a promise of a coming one who would be a deliverer who is descended from David, who is of uh, the family of Jesse. And he's going to come forth. You will notice also in verse 2 that the Holy Spirit of God rests upon him and empowers him. So verse 2 says, chapter 11, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I mean, what an incredible, privileged empowerment by God, the Holy Spirit, resting on the one who is descended from David and who is to come in the future. Notice in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 11 how he judges. It says, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, which by the way is usually how we make a judgment call. What I've seen with my eyes, I saw it, Therefore I can make a judgment. But the Lord, this coming one, He will not judge by what His eyes see, uh, or, nor will He decide disputes by what His ears hear. But look how He will judge in verse 4. With righteousness He shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of His waist, and faithfulness the belt of His loins." Oh, do we not long for, dear congregation, our Lord Jesus Christ to come and be just like that? To live like that. To show Himself like that when He comes again. Notice that He will bring in spiritual conditions. And you'll notice the language in verses 6 through 9, these spiritual conditions that, that declare or show forth the all-encompassing knowledge of the Lord God. So the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a statement of spiritual conditions that shall prevail when this coming one shall come and deliver. And notice when this happens. Look at verse 10 of chapter 11. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people's, None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Of Him shall the nations inquire, and His resting place shall be glorious. Verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant from that remains of His people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Notice in that day, verse 10 and 11 of chapter 11. That's going to be a day of redemption. That's going to be a day of restoration, a day of rest, a day of recovery spiritually, a day when salvation shall come and a remnant shall be saved. Now that day, chapter 11, is the same day in chapter 12. Same day. So in that day, chapter 11, now in chapter 12, verse uh, verse 1, you will say in that day, verse 4, and you will say in that day, 
This is the same day of chapter 11 when Isaiah the prophet has described the coming one who will bring in such spiritual transformation and conditions that Messiah will bring in so much so that he can speak in this language of spiritual transcendence, as it were, of the peace that comes through the coming Davidic Lord Jesus Christ. And Judah and Jerusalem, uh, who in Isaiah's day, right at this moment, King Hezekiah, being confronted with the, the Assyrian nation who are threatening, as you know, to take them into captivity, as the prophet thinks about the, the evils of Assyria and the judgments that they're going to bring upon his people, he, he's thinking about the deliverance of one who would come and save his people from the, deliverance, from the threat that was coming to them. A future invasion, whether it's by Assyria in the Old Testament, or by the Babylonians in the Old Testament, would have been a very dark day. In fact, the Bible talks about that day, the day of the Lord, in the Old Testament, when some of those things happen, and all the days of the Lord are these days of judgment when they occur. A day that is in the future, a day that looms over them with darkness and distress. They need help, they need salvation, they need saving, and it's only this promised one uh, in Isaiah that is going to do that. One of the beautiful things about the prophecy Isaiah of Isaiah is that it is the gospel in the Old Testament. In fact, he is the even evangelist of the Old Testament, proclaiming salvation for God's people. So God is bringing to a nation that is under under the pressure from the nations to be overthrown. He brings a word of assurance and he brings a word of hope. He brings a word of salvation. Now, how do you respond to a word like that from God? Because that's who it ultimately comes from, through the prophet. Well, you respond with thankfulness. And you respond with an outburst, a song, with singing, with a sharing, with hymns of praise, because of the promise of deliverance. In fact, I would su suggest to us this morning, every time we sang this morning, and every time we do sing, we are considering God, considering the Lord Jesus Christ, considering His salvation and His deliverance uh, of us from our sins and our guilt. And all hymns in a variety of ways, with all of their different cadences and so on, they all point and ought to point to that one great theme of what God has done for His people. Now you remember in the Old Testament when Israel came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. And there they are on the other side of the Red Sea, and there are all the Egyptians lying dead on the seashore. The Bible says that the first thing that Moses did was he sang a song to God for their deliverance. He gave thanks to God. And as you know, a little later on, his sister Miriam took up her tambourine, and along with the women, sang also a song to God about the great victory that God had achieved over the Egyptians. What was the exodus in the Old Testament. What was that? That was simply redemption from bondage. That was God saving His people out of Egypt, redeeming them and bringing them into freedom and giving them a new land. That's what our salvation, that's a picture of what salvation is for us. We have, we have experienced a new exodus ourselves from our old life from our slavery to sin and our bondage to sin, we call that redemption. And all the redeemed of the Lord shall say so, shall say what? That there is God to be thanked for it. Now, when we come to this passage this morning, 
May I suggest to you there are three things that we can thank God for from Isaiah chapter 12. Here's the first one. The Lord is my Savior. It's the first thing I can give thanks for. The Lord is my Savior. Number two, the Lord is my sustainer. He sustains me. Number three, the Lord is my sovereign. It's very simple, isn't it? The Lord is my Savior. The Lord is my sustainer. The Lord is my sovereign. My Savior, my sustainer, my sovereign. What does that mean? That means God redeems. He's my Savior. That means God refreshes me. He's my sustainer. And that means God rules and reigns over me because God is my sovereign. I think it's helpful for us to look at Isaiah chapter 12 and see it in the light of this. Now, may I suggest to you also that hidden within those ideas of, that we find here, the Lord is my Savior, the Lord is my sustainer, and the Lord is my sovereign, that you have the threefold office of our Lord Jesus Christ revealed to us the mediator of the new covenant, our prophet, our priest, and our king, our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, when we speak about salvation of ourselves, it's a very personal thing, right? It's a very individual thing. It's not God corporately saving a people, but God individually saving you and saving me. So salvation is a very real, very personal thing. Because not only does does it speak to me about uh, this redemption that I have from God, but it speaks to me that I now have an ongoing relationship with the one who has saved me, who has redeemed me. And how personal that is. Jesus saved you. Jesus died for you. Notice the language. It's personal, isn't it? So will you look at verse 1? Notice in verse 1, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. This is between me, I will give thanks, and God, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Now, why will he give thanks? There are two reasons why he's going to do that in the passage. First of all, you will notice he says in verse 1, you were angry with me, but not anymore. Secondly, you comfort me. So though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. I give thanks to you for that, Lord. And I give thanks that you comfort me. Now notice it's, it's you were angry with me and you comfort me. How personal that is. You can't blame someone else for your wrongs or your sins. You alone and I are accountable to God for our sins. Personally. So my salvation is a personal redemption, a personal salvation that is precious to me. The Lord has done that for me. The Lord has been gracious to me. So how personal it is. So my giving thanks to God is because God has done something for me. He has turned His anger away from me. And He has comforted me. And what beautiful things. He was angry, but not anymore. He comforts me. That's why David could say in Psalm 6, verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. You don't want that. You don't want God to come to you and rebuke you in hot, holy anger, and you don't want Him to discipline you in wrath. You want Him to discipline you in love, like a father does, as we know from Proverbs chapter 3 and Hebrews You know, the wonderful thing about my salvation and your salvation is we used to be under the wrath of God. 
We used to be under the anger of God, but not anymore. Now, you know, there are many Christians that struggle with this concept. That when they sin against God, God is angry. God's wrath is going to come upon me. But God loves us. And God cares for us. And not anymore, the prophet says, your anger has turned away. Now, how did that happen? Bottom line, Jesus died. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus himself says that, and I think it's still in the context of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So you either have the Son and no wrath, no anger, or you don't have the Son and the wrath of God, Jesus says, abides on you. Now here's an important principle that I think many Christians have not really understood. God does not change His wrath into His love. God does not change His wrath into comfort. He does not do that. In fact, He cannot do that. God cannot change His wrath or ignore His wrath because sin always demands the wrath of God. So my sin always demanded the wrath of God. God's wrath is always upon a guilty sinner, a guilty person. So how can God turn his anger away from me? If he can't just overlook my sin and say, I love you, and it's going to be great from now on. If God can't do that, what happens to his anger at my sin? Well, we all know that it fell on Jesus. Isn't that the great thing about the gospel? That the anger of the Father fell upon His beloved Son so that the Father remains still holy and just because He has expended His wrath justly upon our sin that Jesus took upon Himself. What a wonderful gospel that is, right? So God is holy and just, but only if He punishes sin. And that's what He did in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus took my place. That means Jesus bore my wrath and the anger that God had against my sin. He bore my sins and God's wrath was poured out upon Him. Now the consequence of that, which has to be, is that God's comfort comes to His people. That's salvation. Wrath has been given. Wrath has been poured out, but now God pours out His comfort and His love because He can upon His people. So He puts away His anger by pouring it out upon His Son so that He might turn and have comfort to me. You see that word comfort, that you might comfort me at the end of verse 1? That means to have compassion. It means to console me. Because aren't we overwhelmed at this time when God's wrath is upon us, we would be overcome with our sinfulness and our guilt. But then, with that wrath being falling upon Jesus, the comfort of God comes to me. God consoles me. He is compassionate towards me. Now you know, to feel the wrath of God or to anticipate the wrath of God is always a very fearful and fearsome thing to think about. The Bible talks about there's going to come a day when God's going to pour out His wrath upon the unbelieving world, upon unbelievers personally, because they're still in their sin. And the only thing that their sin demands is His wrath. And He's going to pour His wrath out upon them. That's a fearful thing to think about. Sometimes when we, 
when we sin against God, we rightly so are fearful of God because of sin and what it means to God. But thank God we can turn from that, confess that to Him, because Jesus has paid for it already, and return to Him, and He will receive us because we confess our sins to Him. So how beautiful then is the comfort that God brings in salvation to us. God has put away our sins. Notice, the only response I have to putting away my sins is post-salvation, when I can actually do that. I can. I must repent. It is true. But my sanctification is going to be an ongoing repentance, a turning from my sin and an experience of the comfort of God. That's salvation. That's redemption. The Lord is my Savior. He redeems me. So verse 2 says that God is our salvation. Look at verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. So I can trust Him. I don't have to be afraid of Him. In fact, the Lord God, verse 2, is he's my strength, and He is my song, and He has become my salvation. That's my expression of gratitude and thankfulness that the Lord is my Savior. So this is the first thing I want you to just see. The Lord is my Savior. He redeems me. He has put away His anger by expending it upon His Son, and He comforts me. The second thing that the Lord does is that He refreshes me. He not only redeems me, but He refreshes me. Now, I don't have to tell you, because I'm sure you've experienced it, our spiritual lives at times can be like a desert. They can be dry. We can be dry spiritually. We can be barren spiritually. If you read Psalm 107, the psalmist describes that spiritual desert-like experience. Sometimes we feel like an old branch, dried up, brittle, ready to snap, ready to break apart at any moment. And then, and then Christ comes to us with refreshment, with His salvation, to sustain us, to remind us again. Just like a, a refreshing glass of cold water on a scorching day to a thirsty soul. That's how Christ comes to His people. So notice in verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The Proverbs tell us that good news refreshes the bones. Have you ever experienced that? You've been waiting for some news, the news comes, you're not sure if it's good or bad, but when it's good, you feel light, you are refreshed by it. That's why Song of Solomon says, you sustain me with raisins, you refresh me with apples. There's something delightful in the refreshment of God. That word refresh, by the way, Song of Solomon, simply means to support me, to sustain me. To sustain me. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Now, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, talked about refreshment, the refreshing water that He brings Himself. And I want to show you that. Will you turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 4? We'll see what Jesus says about refreshing. John's Gospel, chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 13. So John, chapter 4, and verse 13... 
Jesus says to the Samaritan woman at the well, verse 13, Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. You're just going to have to keep coming back here every day to draw water because you're thirsty. You drink this water from Jacob's well, you'll always be thirsty. But look at verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, a well of water, a fountain of water welling up to eternal life. Now isn't that exactly what Isaiah the prophet says? With joy you will draw forth from the wells of salvation this kind of water. That you will never thirst again. You will always be sustained and always be refreshed by it. Turn over to John 7. Look at John's Gospel, chapter 7 and verse 37. So on the last day of the feast, John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He doesn't mean, are you thirsty physically? That's not what he means, right? He means, spiritually, are you thirsty? Now, how would you be spiritually thirsty? Because you are oppressed by something, by sin. And you need refreshment. If anyone thirsts, do you, do you thirst for this deliverance? Do you thirst for this? Let him come to me and drink. What will happen? Your thirst will be refreshed. Why? Verse 38, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture is said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water from Christ himself. So Jesus speaks of the water from the wells of his salvation. I want you to notice in Isaiah 12 verse 3, the anticipation and the approach in coming to the wells of salvation. Notice what Isaiah says, with joy. With joy. Now you know, a thirsty person who's out there in the desert on a very hot day sees a well of water and they don't say as they see it, oh, well, it's possible that there might be some water there. No, there's suddenly this energy that takes over them and they sprint, don't they, to that well to get the water that they believe is there. Or a sight of water in the desert is enough to encourage the approach and the anticipation. That is how we are to approach the Lord who has saved us, with an anticipation of joy, of delight, of rejoicing in the one who refreshes us and brings us this deliverance from our spiritual thirst. So God sustains us in our salvation by causing us to rejoice in this unlimited, overflowing unrestrained supply of his salvation. Because you were saved yesterday or 10 years ago or 50 years ago, it's the same salvation. It's the same Savior every day with his same salvation who is available to refresh us each one. Salvation is for every day. Salvation is for this morning. Salvation is for now to be relished, and to be delighted in. The one thing I know about my sin, it always makes me miserable, but the one thing I know about my Savior is He always makes me happy. 
He saves me. He has saved me. He refreshes me. He's redeemed me. You know, that's, that's why Paul can say in Philippians 4, right, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. Why? Because the Lord is my salvation. So verse 3, <clears throat> With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. I can go again and again and again and again and again and be refreshed. I can go back to the Savior, back to the salvation, and refresh myself. I can go to the Word of God, right? Over and over again and refresh myself. So I notice then that the Lord is my Savior <clears throat> and the Lord is my sustainer. What is my response to this Savior, to this sustainer? Well, above everything else, I should worship Him, right? I should give thanks to Him. So notice the first way we can worship the Lord. Look at verse 4. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. The first way you can worship God is to thank Him. Giving thanks springs from the heart. And meditating upon God leads to exclamation. Give thanks to the Lord. But notice the second way to worship, verse 4, is you can call upon the Lord at any time. <clears throat> Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Call upon His name. Have you ever often wondered why I should call upon the name of the Lord? Is not the name of the Lord a strong tower? Is not the Lord Himself like that? A place of protection? A place to run to, to be safe? The names of God are those very things that reflect the character of God and the attributes of God. That's why the Puritans, they always said that God's name is His very nature. It's who God is in His name. God reveals Himself in His name. Isn't that Jesus? You shall call His name Jesus. Why? Because He shall save. That's what His name means. Jesus means Savior. He shall save His people from their sins. You know, the Lord Jesus often referred to himself as the great I am, right? I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. And so on. He said that of himself. Where did that expression come from? I am. I am. It comes from the burning bush experience that Moses had in Exodus chapter 3. You go and tell them, Moses, that I am has sent you. I am that I am. The name of God that is self-existing, self-exalting, and eternal, of sovereign lordship. That's why Augustine, the church father, said, or asked the question, who is there that is more than I am? Who is there that is more than that? God reveals himself, and he identifies himself in his names. So I can call upon his name, because it's a reflection of his character. That's the second way I worship, I call upon him. The third way... <clears throat> look at the end of verse 4, is I can proclaim the Lord's name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. His name declares His accomplishments. Verse 4, make known His deeds. That's what prompted Peter to say, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This name of Christ, our Lord Jesus. So the third way I worship the Lord is to declare who He is and proclaim that His name is above every name. The fourth way 
to worship. Look at verse 5 and 6. Is to sing unto the Lord. Verse 5. Sing praises to God. Let this be known in all the earth. What am I going to sing about? Verse 5. Let us sing about His glory. He has done gloriously or He has done glorious things. What is He saying? We want the world to know. There used to be a chorus or a song. I want the world to know about Jesus. I want the world to know. We want the world to know that our God is a sovereign God. Sing praises to the Lord for He has done gloriously. Let this be known over all the earth. So I discover that the sovereignty of God is seen in His glory and in verse 6 is seen in His greatness. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So in the third place, I discover that not only is the Lord my Savior, not only is the Lord my sustainer, but the Lord is my sovereign. Not only my redeemer, not only my refreshment, but He's my ruler. He rules over me. He reigns. This is why we give thanks and why we should do it every day because God is sovereign and God is ruling. So David says, Psalm 28, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts. I am helped. My heart exults. And with my song I will give thanks to the Lord. Sing praises to the Lord for He has done gloriously. So every day for you as a Christian, for me as a Christian, is a day to give thanks. To give thanks to God because He saved me. To give thanks to God because He sustains me. To give thanks to God because He is my sovereign. He rules and He reigns. Yes, His anger was but for a moment. Weeping may last only the night, but joy comes in the morning, doesn't it? So Psalm 86.12, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever and ever. When does that start, beloved? It starts right now. It starts right now. You can give thanks right now that the Lord is your Savior. Your Lord is your Sustainer. The Lord is your Sovereign. So notice in verse 1 it says, I will thank God. Why? Because He has saved me. He has not poured out His anger upon me, but He has comforted me with His love. And verse 2, I will thank God. I can proclaim Him. I can sing about Him. I can share Him. I can do those things because He is glorious and because He is great. Thanksgiving is coming. You have some things to thank Him for, don't you? You can thank Him for your salvation and thank Him that He sustains you and thank Him that He is your sovereign. He redeems you. He refreshes you. He rules over you. That's the message. That's the gospel of our lives. That's the thanksgiving we're to show to demonstrate to a world that they might see the living Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. (coughs) Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us, that you are our God, you are our Savior, our sustainer, our sovereign, that you have redeemed us with, not with things like silver and gold, but with precious blood, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the sacrifice Jesus made. He died so that we might live, that the anger of the Father, the wrath of God, might turn away. 
We once were, as Paul says, the children of wrath by nature, but we have been redeemed with precious blood so that we might be refreshed day by day by this glorious salvation and Savior, so that we might declare and shout out and sing to the world that this God who saves and sustains is the sovereign God who rules and reigns over all things, even over the unbelieving world. So we pray that each one of us this morning might give thanks because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done. We have much to be thankful for, Father. We desire to praise you and to worship you and to call upon your name, for it is holy and you are our God and you have made us yourself for yourself. So we worship you this morning in these ways and may this week of thanksgiving be a time to bring glory and praise to you in the giving of thanks. In Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. 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 Will you take your hymnals and turn?